Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, legislators are considering a bill that would abolish the State Arts Commission. We'll talk to the commissioner's executive director. Having worked in NDA for three years and here at the Arts Commission for eight, I can tell you that uh, there would be no efficiency gained uh, and that it, uh, as proposed, is, is not good government at all. Plus, find out why one education policy researcher says a new funding proposal could benefit some 80% of school districts. And in this week's book club, a new look at the classic documentary Eyes on the Prize. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Senate Appropriations Committee is now considering a bill that would abolish the Mississippi Arts Commission and transfer its authority, property, and employees to the Mississippi Development Authority. The Arts Commission provides grants and other support to individual artists, musicians, performers, and others. It also supports nonprofit arts organizations from large to small and oversees the annual Governor's Arts Awards. MAC Executive Director Malcolm White joins us to talk about Senate Bill 2611. He says news of the bill took him by surprise. Uh, Friday, I got a call from um, one of my uh, board members who saw it and called me Friday to let me know that it uh, had been not only filed, but had been posted. And and I was driving to Hattiesburg uh, for an event. So that's the first time I was aware of it. So no one had spoken to you prior to this being introduced? No. What do you make of it? It's a bad idea, and uh, I'm certainly opposed to it. Um, there's no efficiency to be gained here. Um, seems to be a power grab which I don't understand because <laughs> the arts have really never had that much power. But uh, I think it's being touted as a consolidation to save money and to make government more efficient. And having worked in NDA for three years and here at the Arts Commission for eight, I can tell you that uh, there would be no efficiency gained uh, and that it, uh, as proposed, is, is not uh, good government at all. How much does the Arts Commission get in federal funds? About 800000 And in state funds? About $1.5 million. If this goes through and the Arts Commission is put under MDA, would that federal money still be available? It could be available if MDA were willing to change its process and procedure for grant making. Currently, the way that the federal money uh, mandates work for grant making is through the National Endowment for the Arts because it has to be done by a panel of peers uh, and has to be totally an open panel process and um, it, it cannot be dictated by uh, employees of the government or by bureaucrats. So in, in the case of the Arts Commission, every grant is reviewed by a panel 
It is graded, it is reviewed by the staff, then recommended to the board, and the board has the ultimate authority uh, for approving the grants. And in the legislation that has been presented, the board would be done away with on July the 1st, 2017. What about the idea that consolidating the Arts Commission into MDA is, well, we talk about more fiscally responsible, but, but also presents a, a stronger or a, a more uh, comprehensive package to people who want to come into the state to do business in Mississippi, that the arts and culture would be included in that package? Makes absolutely no sense to me. I don't even know what that means. I worked at MDA for three years and at the Arts Commission for eight. I've never heard a conversation about anything around those words. We currently already work together to present the state in its best light and to promote people to come here to visit uh, and to relocate here and to do business with the state. Uh, I am, uh, along with some people uh, in the old days, the, the, uh, the author of and the 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 origin of the creative economy movement in the state, and we have always worked with MDA and the Arts Commission on that. We currently at the Arts Commission house all of that work, and I do not understand what more efficient it could be if if all of our grants, all of our services, all of our programs and initiatives, our work in schools, uh, and the creative economy would be returned to MDA. I just don't get it. You have headed the Arts Council for many years, Arts Commission, and then you went to head the MDA, then came back to the Arts Commission. Do you think this is personal in any way? Well, first of all, I did not head MDA. I was the head of Visit Mississippi, which is the tourism division of MDA. Uh, I don't know how it could be personal uh, because when I left MDA, and was considering coming back to the Arts Commission, uh, I spoke, both myself and my board spoke directly to the governor uh, and to the director of MDA if they had any problems uh, with this selection. And they said no, that indeed they were very excited about my returning to the Arts Commission and look forward to working with me. I don't know what other personal issues could be involved. Since you've learned of this bill, have you talked to lawmakers? Have you gotten any more definition of what's intended? Well, mostly my board is is doing that. I am in a very precarious place of being a state employee and the director of a state agency, and I'm really not at liberty to go across the street to the Capitol and uh, interact with the legislative process. Uh, it is just not the way the system is set up. But I have tried my very best to talk to people uh, offline and in person to try to get a sense of what this is all about. But I really uh, haven't been able to ascertain very much information. Do you have a sense of whether this will gain traction, whether there is support from lawmakers behind this? I think there's always a fear that uh, that stuff like this could pass. We, Our great hope is that it will guy in the Appropriations Committee and not become a Senate bill. But if it makes its way to the Senate floor and the companion bill in the House makes its way to the House, it will be uh, a very difficult fight. Uh, As I understand it, this has the full support of the governor, uh, and we don't know uh, how the speaker or the lieutenant governor feel about it. So uh, that's your guess is as good as mine. Um, but there's a lot of opposition, certainly, uh, in the arts community to this, but I'm not quite sure about the legislature. 
Do you know what the next step is? The next step is the bill either comes out of the Appropriations Committee or it dies in the Appropriations Committee of the Senate. And from there, um, we will know a lot more about how we move forward. Malcolm White is the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you. Republican Senator Lydia Chastanel of Monona authored the bill. She declined to comment. There is a similar bill in the House which has been referred to two committees. That's often a legislative tactic used to make it more difficult for a bill to pass. Lawmakers have until Tuesday to pass bills out of committee. In other news, Mississippi immigrant rights supporters are calling on lawmakers to reject proposed legislation they say would promote fear and discrimination. MPB's Desiree Frazier reports. They want to prohibit sanctuary cities like Jackson. Bill Chandler and an interpreter are at the Mississippi Immigrants' Rights Alliance office explaining their list of bad bills to supporters. Fifty people, including children, are preparing to go to the Capitol to meet with legislators and voice their concerns. Among the proposed measures is one that would remove Jackson from serving as a sanctuary city for undocumented immigrants. Another bill would require employers to only hire U.S. citizens or legal immigrants. Former State Representative Jim Evans is president of the Alliance. He wants lawmakers to reject all these efforts to further frighten and, and, and intimidate people who are already boxed in and being treated unfairly. Evans isn't sure what the president's immigration agenda is, even though Trump signed an executive order yesterday to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. He says the possibility of deportations is terrifying immigrant communities. Melinda Medina is an organizer with the Alliance. And if we are a country that says that we are uh, of Christian moral and values and family values, then what are we doing when we say your family is not important enough? We don't care if we tear your family apart. Republican Senator Michael Watson of Jackson County authored the bill that would require employers hire only U.S. citizens. There's a law for a reason. Uh, if people chose to, to break the law, do we reward them uh, or do we bring some type and sense of justice to this? Watson says he doesn't support fear-mongering and added the nation's immigration laws need reforming. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. Find out why one education policy researcher says a new funding proposal could benefit some 80% of school districts. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Recent storms have brought an enormous amount of rain and snow to California. So is it finally time to say the multi-year drought there is officially over? Governor Jerry Brown didn't mention the drought at all in his State of the State address this week. We'll check in on California's wet winter. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As lawmakers continue to scrutinize the EdBuild funding recommendations, one education policy researcher says most Mississippi schools would get more money under the new proposal. The education group EdBuild presented its report to legislators last week after being contracted in the fall to evaluate the current funding formula known as the Mississippi Adequate Education Program, or MAEP. Rachel Cantor is with the education policy research group Mississippi First. She joins us to help break down the new recommendations and what they could mean for public schools in Mississippi. For the most part, it's exactly what, if you followed Ed Bell, you may have expected, which is a weighted student funding formula with 
a base amount and then different weights for different student characteristics. One of the things that was anticipated was whether or not EdBuild would come in at or above the base student cost that MAEP calls for. And they did come in slightly above the base student cost. And that's important because that number is guaranteed for every single child, regardless of what other characteristics they have. So the fact that the base student cost is slightly higher is a good thing. How does that differ from MAEP, Mississippi Adequate Education Program? So both funding formulas have within them what's called a base student cost, which is we're going to calculate the amount of money that an average child that has no other special characteristics needs in order for their education to be adequate. So under MAEP, the base student cost has fluctuated. Usually it's not funded at the level that the formula calls for. Right now, it's around $4,300 as a base and ed, or a little bit above that, uh, actually. It's, it's actually around 4600 I think, as a base. And then EdBell comes in at around 4800 as a base. And then what you do from there is you look at the different types of students that are in schools and you add to that base amount different amounts depending on the types of characteristics they have. Give us an example of, or examples of some of those characteristics. The one that is currently in MAEP is what's called the at-risk student add-on. And that is for students who qualify for free lunch. So students who are at or below the poverty level get a 5% add-on to the base student cost. So if you were a child in poverty, you would get the base student cost plus 5% of the base student cost. If you're a child who is not in poverty, you're not qualified for that at-risk funding, you just get the base student cost. Under EdBuild's formula, not only is the base student cost higher, so is the add-on for children who live in poverty. This is all related to the student. Are there uh, recommendations with EdBuild or differences between that and MAEP regarding schools themselves? So one of the things that EdBuild does in this formula is they took away what's called the 27% rule, what people call the 27% rule. So the way that, that MAEP works is you have that base student cost, you multiply that by the number of students in average daily attendance and the at-risk component, and that's your total cost. And then locals have to pay a certain percentage of that cost. Under the law, every school district has to tax its citizens at least 28 mils. However, if the value of 28 mils is over 27% of that total cost, then basically those school districts that are property wealthy get to keep the difference. So that means that those property-rich districts are basically getting a bonus from the state. In order for EdBell to pay for some of these recommendations and why more school districts can quote-unquote get win or get more money is because the EdBuild formula relies on the idea that those school districts that are getting a bonus from the state right now no longer get that bonus. So they actually, because they have more ability to pay, they have to pay the full value of their 28 mils towards their cost. And that is about $119 dif- $119 million difference. And if that goes back into the formula, there's more money for the school districts. So for the most part, those school districts that were, and there are about, there are about 50 of them that 
benefit from that 27% rule, if you take that 27% rule away and put it back into the formula, um, most school districts get more money. Even some of those 27% districts still get more money from the state than they did under the old MAEP formula because their school, their student body is, is diverse enough that those weights actually make up the difference. What is the takeaway? What do you, what should listeners know about Ed Bill versus MAEP? If you're looking at it from how much money I have right now, Am I getting more or am I going to get less? By and large, 80% of the school districts under the EdBuild formula, if it's fully, if all the recommendations are taken, 80% of the school districts will get more in real dollars than they have right now from the state under the EdBuild formula. There are 20% of school districts, however, that in order for them to maintain the same level, the same level of funds that they have currently in real dollars, they may have to raise their local taxes in order to maintain that because they will not get as much money from the state under the Edbuild formula. Like I said, it's, it's about 20% of the school districts overall. They're all different, and they're all different reasons why they might be impacted in this way by the, by the formula, but it will be up to those school districts to decide. So what legislators have to decide is whether or not the 80% that would be getting more, if that's more important to them than the 20% that would not be getting more. It's going to be very interesting to see how this breaks out. There are going to be a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who have most of their school districts are going to benefit, and then there are going to be people on both sides of the aisle where their school districts are not going to benefit. So while this process has seemed very partisan up to this point, you might see some of that fraying when you look at what actually happens for individual school districts. Most people, though, most listeners, their school districts are going to benefit in real dollars under the new formula. Rachel Cantor is executive director of the Education Policy Research Group, Mississippi First. We'll take a new look at the classic documentary, Eyes on the Prize. That's next in this week's book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On the next Creature Conference, Libby Hartfield is bringing in James Cummins from Wildlife Mississippi to bring us ways to help conserve Mississippi's wildlife habitats. Also, we speak with Chaz Gavitt from Repticon and what to expect from their scaly friends at their upcoming show in South Haven. As always, we'll be taking your creature calls, so tune in to Creature Conference today at 9 a.m. only on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 30 years ago this month, a new documentary television series premiered called Eyes on the Prize. It was a close look at the civil rights movement that framed the period in a way most Americans had not seen before. John Else was a producer on that series and has written a new book about it called True South. He joins us in this week's book club. I began writing the book the week that Barack Obama was re-elected uh, by a wide margin, and the book went to the printer the day Donald Trump was elected. So I began to work on this way, way back at a time when I thought, in, in sort of in, in, in a very good way, the book might actually be irrelevant. <clears throat> the gains of the civil rights movement would be marching forward, you know, in their herky-jerky, stuttering way, but they would be marching forward. The irony of the book going to press 
on the day of Donald Trump's election is is quite astonishing for me. And I'm, I fear that the book may be irrelevant in the worst sort of way now. I mean, the, you know, the legacy of Dr. King has apparently slammed up against the legacy of, of George Wallace. Tell us about, for those who may not be familiar with Eyes on the Prize. Eyes on the Prize was um, a series of uh, television documentaries uh, created by a fellow named Henry Hampton, which was aired nationally in 1986, 1987. It told the story of the struggle for African-American liberation, first in the southern United States, between the Brown versus Board of Education desegregation decision in 1954 and the events in Selma, Alabama, and the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. It then went on after 1965, and we covered the events in the United States, including in the North, in the 1970s and 80s, the rise of black power, black nationalism, the struggles over affirmative action. And it really was Henry Hampton's intent to make a great, giant series of historical films that were about the expansion of democracy, expansion of American democracy, first in the South, particularly in the rural South, and then moving northward as the decades progressed. Is Mississippi specifically found in Eyes on the Prize? It sure is. Mississippi looms large in this story. That's no secret to Mississippians. In Eyes on the Prize, number one, there's an entire hour devoted solely to Mississippi. The first half of that hour is about the struggle of Medgar Evers and his assassination. And then the second part of that hour is about the Mississippi Summer Project, the voter registration project in the summer of 1964. John, your book sort of takes us behind the scenes. It is the creation of Eyes on the Prize and then the making of. Were you directly involved in the production? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was... I mean, I have a complicated relationship to Eyes on the Prize because I had actually been involved in the civil rights movement myself in the the mid-1960s in Mississippi and Alabama. And then when it came time for Henry to uh, launch Eyes on the Prize in the 1980s, 20 years after the civil rights movement, I heard about the project, uh, and I called him up. I cold-called him, and this friendly fellow answered the phone. One thing led to another. And I ended up uh, serving on Eyes in the Prize as the cinematographer for most of the interviews and also as a series producer. I, I was a guy who was sort of in charge of making sure that all the stories over all the episodes meshed together and, and worked uh, were clear the way they should. The documentary was made a couple of decades past the civil rights movement, the height of the civil rights movement. Did you face any opposition in the making of the documentary? You know, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, we, no, to my knowledge, there was no one who tried to stop the making of the documentary. Henry Hampton was determined that he was going to have voices from all sides of that, that struggle. I mean, the, the, the story of civil rights is a black story and a white story. It's a story of activists. It's a story of those who resisted integration. And we went to great lengths, I mean, obviously, to interview the courageous local folks you know, who stepped up to, to fight for civil rights. But we also interviewed uh, people who resisted the struggle for integration and full citizenship. We interviewed William Simmons, who was the head of the Citizens Council in Mississippi during the, uh, the mid-1960s, who gave us a great interview. It was very forthright, very candid. We did an interview with Governor George Wallace. And those folks who, I think in many ways, 
suspected they were on the wrong side of history were gracious enough and candid enough to speak with us about that time, about those times. True South, Henry Hampton, and Eyes on the Prize, the landmark television series that reframed the civil rights movement. We've been speaking with its author, John Els. Thank you so much for being with us, John. Thank you. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, Creature Comforts. Then at 10, MPB Season Pass. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, you can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app in any mobile store. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi. Edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Marketplace Tech for Thursday, January 26th. One of the centerpieces of President Trump's campaign was the call for the return of manufacturing jobs to the U.S. But a survey out this week from Global...